to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the former senior lead for education standards and a core team member at The Black Curriculum, a social enterprise that aims to deliver Black British history across the UK by providing a curriculum and free resources for schools to teach students about Black history. Ben Mearhart is an equality, diversity and inclusion consultant, trainer and educator with a background in education, including as a joint head teacher. And he's previously worked with Show Racism, The Red Card and Think Equal. Welcome, Ben, to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Good to have you. you. I feel very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, Um, for joining us today. Indeed. So we get a lot of questions around education, actually a lot of questions from educators in general. So I'm really hoping that I can bring some of those to you and you can help answer them. But I guess first off, for those who may not be familiar with the Black Curriculum, what is it all about? How did you get involved? I know that it was founded by Lavinia Stennett. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, right, based, yes. based on her own experiences uh, in, the edu- in the education system. So what's the story behind the Black Curriculum? Um, I think it was, um, the, the essential element is, is to, to see how frequently Black history, particularly Black British history, was omitted from the national curriculum in the UK um, and, and it continued to be hidden. And so to, to build from, I guess, the optimism that is within um, Black History Month, you know, but equally, it's it, it sort of what happens to black history, black British history for the rest of the year. Um, equally, cultural awareness days, cultural awareness weeks, what happens to cultural awareness the rest of the year. So, so the aim was to really combat that sort of important step, important start, but, but to, to embed black British history all the way through the curriculum and all the way through the year. So starting all the way from early years, right the way through up to university and beyond. Um, but, and through that to to um, to bring a, a richer, deeper, more realistic sense of identity for young people in the UK, but also through that to, to enhance social cohesion. It, it's not about um, um, supporting greater tolerance because I don't think in reality anybody just wants to be tolerated. Um, it's about deepening understanding and awareness, um, as I said, of, of those hidden histories and experiences and, and, and identities, um, and particularly centering on the experience of young, young people to empower them in, in the present, but also in, in the future. Um, too many of my colleagues and, and friends um, found that it wasn't until their later teens or adult life that they started to learn about black history and, and black British history and to learn those vital elements of their identity and, and their legacy. Um, so rather waiting to that point as early as possible, get that important information into the education system in a way that is genuinely embedded. I think that's the key. We'll probably come to it a bit later, but I think that's essential. I think. As a leader, I know for myself that you can relatively quickly um, include hidden histories in a rather superficial way within your curriculum. Um, but to really embed it and to do it justice, um, that's, I think that's the real doing of the doing, that's the real work. 
And so for those of us who are, are listening in, um, how do you, uh, Ben, define your racial identity? Do you identify, I mean, are you racialized as white? Yes, I, I am racialized as white. Um, it, yeah, it's it's something that is a constant source of discomfort for myself, if I'm honest. It, it, as soon as the conversation becomes racialized, um, and that's the reference, I, I, I um, yeah, I think it's important for, for, to be conscious of discomfort that comes in. It, it often is, is that way, um, not, not least in terms of, I think, at the moment I'm just defined as those aspects of my identity are defined as, as white or European or indeed male and so on. I, I feel like it, it, it loses the real value of a conversation for me and the real value of, the, of my identity. But yes, yeah, so I'm racialized as white. My my partner is is, is um, black British, although she prefers brown British. Um, and we have three children, so obviously of, of, of mixed race or mixed background, um, which again, I, I don't feel comfortable defining. Um, so, so for me, I'm, I'm coming at it from my experience of being with my partner, but also through with, with my children. And um, part of the reason why I started to to, to look into and, and try to deeper understand racial literacy in particular is is because I wanted to make sure that with them um, I could genuinely support their identity. Um, so when they were having when they were discovering about history and and, and their ancestry and so on, it, it wasn't a question of so often say pausing them while I quickly went to Google something. It was I, I could bring that that to mind. So I've done a an introduction to black um, black studies um, and an advanced course as well to ensure that I've really got that that the the, the, the um that the, the pan African non Eurocentric view of black history and, and I can, can speak to that with with um sufficient authority and authenticity as well um and but above all I, for me for my children but also for the children that I've supported in schools um to deepen that sense of belonging and and to challenge positively challenge. Where, where that's being questioned and, and so on and it's a, a bit of a tangent but it's a great source of sadness for me when initially the boys would be speaking about their their skin tone in terms of um as a caramel and 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 you know in shades of brown and so on which I, I think is such an important way of looking at it whereas in the last year I've noticed they now define me as white you know um, um, my partner is, is black and, and and then when it comes to defining themselves there's a bit of a sort of not grey, obviously, but you know, there's there's a, there's, a, there's a confusion there. Whereas before it was not, not the case. So, sorry, so it's a long way of saying that that yeah, I, I racialised this as white certainly, but but I I'd rather look at it more intersectional, um, realistic um, interpretation of that racialisation. Would you say that you therefore have been on your own personal journey in terms of understanding the meaning of whiteness? I mean, would you say that you grew up aware of? any meaning attached to your own racial identity? I think certainly my, my upbringing was, was slightly unusual in terms of I was in, um, at the time, because um, I, I have a dance and performing arts background. Um, and, and so, so I was, so at that time, it, although it's thankfully it's improved a lot, it was a time when ballet and so on was not something that boys did, even though I love my football too, you know, just to, to balance out the stigma. Um, but, but and, and so I, yeah, I, I was already coming at I think, the world from a point of view that I didn't completely belong in terms of the things that I like to do and things that I, how I naturally express myself that, that didn't fit in. And, and I was conscious of that. Um, and even as I said, a source of stigma. Um, and then at, at school, at secondary particularly, that was my first sort of encounter of, of, of non-white people, you know, one of the better way of just defining it. Um, and yeah, I, I, found, I found a natural attraction affinity with 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 increasing with people who also didn't feel they belonged. Um, that's that's how my sort of friendship groups 
and indeed my career choices evolved. And so I was conscious that I was both a part of their experience, but also part of the problem and also not a part of their experience and so on. So I, I think in a slightly perverse way, I've noticed particularly in my teens and then as an adult that I I enjoy those uncomfortable conversations about people's real experiences about identity and about belonging and not belonging. Um, and I, I like the idea of, of, of trying to support people feeling more included and not in a um, strictly academic or even Ofsted based way, but in, in a really authentic way. Um, but, but yeah, but, but certainly, and not least is um, from a gender point of view as, as well as being white, male, indeed um, uh, heterosexual too. Um, as my life has evolved, realizing that, that what I previously probably would have put down to um to hard work and, and some ability actually um was almost certainly a lot to do with my my, my racialized identity, um, my, my gender, and my sexuality and, and, and beyond. And I, I know for certain that the, the, the achievements I've I've had and the you know, the the roles I've been very fortunate to um to to to, to pursue it. I I wouldn't have got those if those aspects of of my identity were different that, that's my strong belief um mm. so yeah so it's so definitely you know to go to the first point definitely an ongoing journey um and I, I try to go to where I feel most uncomfortable I think that's the, the point of learning and um, as a teacher I think that, that good quality learning is about being on the cusp of discomfort mm. I think not just sort of stretching your comfort zone but being aware of of, of that and I think particularly around conversations with racial literacy and identity and again, particularly as someone racialized as white or perceived to be to be white, then mm. then that that's 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 the that's such a point important starting point. And so, um, presumably, based on what you've been saying about the fact you've gone on this journey to educate yourself around Black history, um, Pan African studies, um, would you say that you try and teach your children about Black pride? Is that something that you yourself um, are actively involved in? It, it absolutely, but, but but not referencing in in those in, it, with a label like that. If you know, it's been sort of like um, thankfully my partner and I are very much on the same page in terms of that. So where if we're watching something together, we we notice something that 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 um that is built upon um stereotypical thinking, or or, or, or indeed stigma around race. That we take a point of we make a point of of, of showing our, our disapproval, our discomfort, and talking it through with the boys and and, and so on and. And and yeah, yeah, we make a point of with films, with books, with characters, with music that we listen to. That that, that but yeah, what, what can be defined certainly is is, in, is it, um, supporting that pride is 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 the focal point for it. But luckily, you know, that tends to be our preferences anyway in terms of you know some medium subject matter. But but, but definitely, I think not least in terms of as the the boys have become more aware of their racialized position, um, and, and and also I think. Because of it, it's so hard to escape within the news, whether it's through um, protests or the, the police, and not least because the boys are at an age where there's they're six now, where they've got a really strong um, and positive opinion of of the police, and then increasingly they're coming across, particularly from America, but a little more widely, where there are examples that they're aware of where that sort of is, is clashing with that worldview, not least along racial lines. So again, to to, to scaffold their understanding sensitively you know without scaring them without you know breaking that worldview um i think that's the sort of discomfort i was talking about a moment ago in terms of that's i think that's where i think it's very important for me not least in terms of racialized identity to take responsibility there 
I think some I've spoken to, and I've done this myself in the past too, might think, well, I'll just wait until they're slightly older, you know, maybe when they hit secondary and so on. I think by that point, it, it's unless they've got that fertile foundation, I think it's, it's too late. They've already got a very established Eurocentric view. Um, so, 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 yeah, definitely in terms of um, pride in, in their heritage and um, pride in being Mac and Brown and Caramel and, and, and so on, um, yeah, it's essential, essential part of our, of our parenting. Definitely. And so just, the, um, I was also just wondering on the flip side, so obviously you teach, uh, I mean, I understand you wouldn't couch it in the terms of black pride, but pride in the uh, black side of their identity. How do you then teach about the white side of their identity? Because presumably, I'm guessing you wouldn't couch it in terms of white pride. I mean, most no, I don't, not pretty horrified by that term, but yeah. No, no, me too. And I think that's, I think that I don't actually tend to focus on it too much, not least because my very sort of personal take on it is that it's it's so dominant, um, whiteness and, and whiteness is the norm and, 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 and a proximity to happiness and so on and, and, and achievement and success and so on. I feel it's so dominant either through the media they're engaged with or indeed what they see at school. Or, um, or in terms of, um, indeed, not least within our, our family as well. But that is, to my mind, the starting point is a tremendous imbalance. So I, I, I think I tend to focus more on, I guess, more localised examples, ideally through my modelling, but also within our family in terms of um, and the, 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 the members of our family that racialised as, as white. But beyond that, I mean, this is probably where I am doing them, and maybe they're understanding a disservice. I, I struggle to find great sources of white pride. If, if I'm honest, if I think back to the history that I learned as a child and, old, and and taught initially as a teacher, obviously there were wonderful achievements you know, within Eurocentric um, history. Um, but such is the bias, such is the um, the, the negative legacy of, of, of such so much of that. I, I think, yeah, I think I, I found I've learned more to try and to find the balance um, there and and. Yeah, it, 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 this is another another really important source of discomfort. I think along those lines, when we're looking at great achievements, um, particularly by white men and so on within history, which at times, of course, the boys come home and tell us about, that, that to really try to balance that out with parallel narratives in terms of my understanding of what else was happening with those black and brown people at that time, and what you know what great female scientists were, were, were you know would be contributing in that space, and so. Yeah, to, to, I guess to, to, to make it a more, I would say, more accurate understanding of history and civilization. So, and I think through that, I guess it's, it's probably a bit idealistic, but it's moving towards a, a pride in humanity. I think that that's what spoke to me so strongly about um, particularly um, pre-colonial um, um, Africa in history. Um, the phenomenal contributions to, to, to society um, and, and to civilization and, and humanity. And I, that's where I, I, I like, I think I tend to go to with the boys in terms of our origins in Africa and how through migration and, and the evolution of civilization um, as human beings is a lot that we've achieved and, and then to, to move, I guess, away from segregating. And so you in terms of your own understanding of um, whiteness, what does whiteness as a racial identity mean to you? It's... That, that it's that it's firstly and fundamentally that it that it's a social construct and I I think that the beauty I think of this of, of this of working in this space and I think around diversity and identity is that there are there is so much that once you learn it or you see it 
you can't unlearn it and you can't unsee it. So knowing that, 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 that and, and seeing it as a reality that, that race and racializing is a social construct serving political purposes and, and ultimately, you know, before say the 1600s um, didn't exist as, as a, you know, didn't serve that purpose in, in the same way it's become more formalized. Um, so, so knowing that, that I think that is a, is a really important sort of starting point for more deeply understanding race and 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 deconstructing and decolonizing our understanding of, of race. So for, for me, whiteness is, is is it's a construct, a social construct that that has served people in power or people you know wishing to have influence and and ultimately to protect the resources that they have. You know that's my understanding of it, certainly of the origins of it. So um, a response to scarcity, a response to to wanting more 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 land and power and influence and so on. And so it's probably, it is naive, but I guess what I keep coming back to is, is that whiteness is a social construct that can be deconstructed. Um, mm. and, 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 and I think that, I guess, more, more superficially, it means that whiteness means that, particularly in the West, that most of the time, most of the spaces you enter, the colour of your skin is not the first thing that people think about. Um, and that is for want of a better word, that is a privilege. That's a great social advantage because of the associations, assumptions, the stereotypes that that come with skin colour and, and racializing people. Um, yeah, that 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 brings advantage, uh, comfort, um, and things that you don't have to see or listen to or or, or, or be challenged upon. And and that's just purely because of the, the power you're born. So probably sorry, I'm mean, probably more complicated response to that than, than maybe you're going for. But, no, um, no, no, no. Yeah, that's how I understand it. I'm interested in in exploring that idea because I think sometimes in these conversations we talk about whiteness as if it's almost devoid of meaning, right? That it's just like a, a an, an identity that sort of whereas other identities are imbued with often negative connotations, that whiteness sort of moves through the world um, seamlessly because it's devoid of connotations. Whereas I think over the years I've now come to the view that that's actually very full of meaning. But it's mm. full of it's full of um, it, it, it's almost as if um, it's like uh, a uh, the, a construction of a false positive identity. That it's almost like you walk into a room and there's almost like it's not that if you were black there'd be an assumption of guilt it's and that you're if you're white there's no assumption the assumption actually if you're white is that you're probably innocent is that you're probably kind that you're probably good that you're probably not breaking the law that you're probably not there to cause trouble that you can be given the benefit of the doubt that you can be thought of as trustworthy in a way that those things are not a given for anyone but they are a given or for most people racialized as white. And I, and I completely accept that there are class differences here because I do mm. think if you're a working class white male in a tracksuit, that does look different for you moving into a space. You know, some of those assumptions may not be present, but there'll be more of those present than if you were a black young man in a tracksuit. Absolutely. And I think also in terms of in, in, in so many contexts, if you are racialized as white, there would be the assumption, I think, that you're in charge or you're maybe close to the person in charge. You know, I think that's where up with our boys when we were searching for schools in the local area. I, I looked at about 10 different schools, really keen to find people in beyond you, 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 the caretaker working in the kitchen or teaching assistant roles and so on. And, and, and not just class teachers, too, but people in senior management who 
who look like the boys, who can they can see themselves in those positions. Um, and it, I, I know statistically, this I think it's like four percent of black and brown head teachers are black and brown. I think that's the latest statistics I'm aware of. So I, I know that it's disproportionate. Um, but but again, I think that also that if we're talking about whiteness as social power, that that assumption that, that you're more likely to be in charge, you, you're more likely to to, um, to 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 have the authority in this situation. I, I think that 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 to me is is, is it is disgusting subliminally. You know, if I'm thinking if that's the perception of, as I said, going back to, to my children or the children I've been responsible in the past, if that's how they're going into the world, that assumption is really brutal. You know, that's another that great compa- it, it, it is. And, and, and very, you know, I can't think of many children I've taught where you could have a, a quick conversation to correct that. No. You, you're, you know, that, that's not least because their lived experience constantly reinforces that. I'm not least for myself, and again, that's part of my my journey. You know what I mean? Is it how appropriate is it for me to be in a senior position, um, given how I understand the world? Um, and and how how do you navigate when I presumably you're as a parent the senior position within your family, right? So in many ways, you then replicate models that are found mm-hmm. within wider society. How do you not reinforce those what that wider messaging? when within the family that's the role you play i think it's it's i think what i've noticed in the last five to ten years is that i've um this is maybe not accurate for, for most people i've noticed that one element of, of whiteness as we're talking about it here is that there'd be probably it's more actually a eurocentric view of a, a real preoccupation with hierarchy i think that links to power and so on. i've noticed in the last five to ten years i've become a lot less hierarchical in terms of you know being on the ladder to whatever, you know, within my career, but also more importantly within my family in terms of through decisions, through conversations, and not least with my partner, but certainly with the boys as well, of being less and less hierarchical in terms of almost like within the round, everyone's view at that point, everyone's view, understanding at that point is, is, is of value and is going to be heard, um, mm. which obviously is trickier when they were younger, but now, now it's, it's, there's so many opportunities for that. Um, and, and I think again, I think it's gender too. I think I, I know as, as, I, as I'm doing, I'm quite frequently here. Um, is uh, men typically interrupt or speak, you know, arguably more aggressively, and, and so on again. So again, I've, that's certainly been my observation of myself and, and a lot of my white male colleagues too. In terms of your expectation within a conversation, you don't expect to be challenged in the same way. You know, and, and again, I, I think to try to deconstruct that sense of that that bit. The um that 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 hierarchy I, I I think is key, but also to be seen to be making um, mistakes um is key, and to not try to as I certainly my opinion was more about uh, as a man and and so on to a certain extent there's certain things you don't show and don't hide and so on and, and that's for me my identity doesn't 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 shine with that um but I think above all and this is what I've, the last couple of years in particular with my trip, my teaching and my training but with boys in particular and critical thinking is, is at any age I think is, is is one of the big keys if you if if we can teach the children to critically engage with what that's what they're understanding is it balanced is it accurate is it trustworthy um I think that's a great way of positively challenging anyone in authority mm. um, um so yeah that's probably where I go for now <laughs> Um, let's let's talk uh, about the the black curriculum and and how mm. 
how you so you you go into schools and you teach the black curriculum that was devised by this social enterprise organization tell me first of all what would you describe as the problem which the black curriculum is responding to that's a great question Um, i think firstly i think I can just speak to a bit why I wanted to join the Black curriculum is because yeah. having seen the the, the the problem you've just defined, um, or that I'm going on to define, I, I didn't see anyone challenging it directly. I didn't see anybody addressing it directly until I read about um, Lavinia's work and, and indeed and looked into the Black curriculum. And, and, and the challenge being is, and I think this is the real crux of it for schools, is that certainly since the murder of George Floyd, um, there was a, a, a you know. A, uh, a great sense of urgency in terms of something must be done in this space, in terms of embedding black British history, black history, hidden histories and, and so on. But beyond that, what, what, what do you do if you don't know the history, if it's not a strong point of subject knowledge for you and you start having conversations around race and racism and you don't really know what you're talking about, you haven't completely investigated your own understanding of that, your own unpositionality there, you can very quickly become undone either just internally as you're teaching or a child says something and you don't know how to address it and expose because parents then complain. And, and, and so I think that the, the real beauty of the Black curriculum is it's, it, the mission is to embed Black British history, not just to sprinkle it in, not just to have the resources ready so you can teach it within at a moment's notice. And how, how do you embed it? And, and, and I think the, there's so many beautiful aspects of the work that, we've, that the Black curriculum has done the last couple of years, not least in terms of um, um, workshops with students to deepen their understanding so that they can go into their schools, which I hope the same for my boys, go into their schools with a depth of understanding of their history um, and indeed um, human history. But, but but I think in terms of schools in particular, what we, we've, 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 um, we train a lot around racial literacy. So which I define as the, the, the confidence to discuss race and the confidence to challenge racism. And with my training, I, I tend to speak about the great quote from Angela Davis, it's not enough to be racist, you need to be anti-racist. And then I go on to say that it's for us, it's not enough to be anti-racist, you need to be racially literate. Because for the foreseeable future, particularly in schools, schools going to, in, the, in the UK are going to be majority white. Leaders within those schools are going to be majority white. And I think within anti-racism, um, it can focus often on, on who's part of the problem. And I think particularly if you're white and male and heterosexual, that's going to strike a nerve, which is maybe going to close your ears to, to the important conversation if you're being accused um, um, or receiving as an accusation in terms of around race and racism and so on. Whereas racial literacy, if, if you're confident discussing race, you're confident chanting racism, then everybody can be part of that. that that's the solution. Everybody can be part of, of that. So I think going back to my point in terms of the response to George Floyd's murder, schools wanted to do something, weren't sure what to do started to have tentative conversations and then the COVID struck and so on and things were, were, were delayed and so on. And so most understandably went to content. They, they went to the curriculum, they went to policy, things that they could control. And 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 and, and so many schools we work with, uh, I work with about curriculum, have done great work along there, uh, along those lines. So they've got a much stronger authentic policy in place, uh, you know, better, more responsive and more um, proactive anti-racist um, protocols. With the curriculum, there's hidden histories there, but then the real work begins because, as with any subject knowledge, if you're not familiar with it completely, as you start to teach it, particularly around race and racism, you've got to be ready to have those conversations. You've got to be ready for a child to say, I don't agree, I'm happy to be white, and I don't like you know, 
you know, going off there and, and rather than just shutting them down, how do you get it to a point where no one is, people are still feeling included and they're still learning and retaining and so on. So that's where our, our work has been essential through um, teaching teachers, supporting teachers to have the conversations internally first, to, to, to become more conscious of their positionality, their intersectional empathy, their understanding and the application of critical thinking. I think that's that's that when it starts to twist. And from there, if they're going into that teaching with that confidence, that confidence to discuss race, to discuss racism and to challenge racism, because as a staff, that's their feeling, that's the evolving school culture. That's that's when we, we, we've learned and we're supporting um, schools to, to really embed Black British history. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, that's that's the key work. So so and so the problem that it's responding to is that what schools are not supported enough by mainstream resources, the resources provided by the Department for Education to convey an accurate picture or they don't have enough information or what? what is the problem? I, th I think the, the problems? I, I, I agree that, that there's many. I, I think that ultimately it's institutional in terms of I think part of um, the, the advantage, social advantage of being white is that um, you, you're rarely in a conversation where you are talking about race. You've rarely had to even confront it. And in some schools, particularly the more elite schools that, that I've worked with with the Black curriculum, um, it's shared with us at focus groups. So there are teachers that it's not like they see racism and turn a blind eye or they don't know how to address it. They don't even see it. You know, that's the perception of the students. It's not even seen. So I think the problem is, is institutional in terms of um, as you know, as, as the, the beauty of this um, set of podcasts, in terms of the whiteness isn't spoken about, it's not acknowledged as so influential. Its origins are not talked about explicitly. But, but I think more, more, more concretely and practic practically, in the, in, the in the national curriculum, there are non particularly from a history point of view, but there are non-statutory examples. So they're not statutory. But you know, the research we did the back curriculum is that a good 80% of those, particularly for year seven, eight, and nine, you know, when the children are 11 and you know, secondary and, and, and beyond, and obviously into GCSE too, you know, a high majority of those are Eurocentric, those non-statutory examples. So, so it's a brave school that goes against those non-statutory examples and starts teaching around. Obviously, there is there are opportunities within the existing national curriculum to do it, but the overall, I guess, subliminal message is that it's optional. Eurocentrism, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the majority content. But also from there, and I think this is the, I guess, where it does require courage and it's, it's to take advantage of the, of the flexibility. They are non-statutory examples. So if you are genuinely committed to the lived experience of your students and staff, when you're reviewing your curriculum, you're looking right. Oh, oh, for example. You're working in a school where it's a majority black student population and so on, or, you know, or, or South Asians and so on, or, or if, and you're aware of the, you know, that, that diversity, to look at your curriculum from that point of view. So which non-statutory examples can we think of that are going to serve the demands and the, and the, and the, you know, the, the required outcomes of the curriculum, but at the same time really serve our, our, our students? So I think it starts with that message in the national curriculum, which it, to a certain extent is a deterrent depending on your perspective. Um, and I think that's that's historic as well, to, um, certainly in my experience. But, but from there, as you say, it is about resources. It is also about, I, I think the problem is, is, is that, I had this myself as a leader, when, when, you're, when you're introducing a new initiative that you've got, you know needs to come in. 
ideally, obviously, you want it to come in pretty quickly. And you, you don't want to upset parents. You don't want to upset staff. And you, and you want it to start making impact straight away. But that's when it comes to, and, and, and ideally, you don't want it to be a culture change situation either, because you work to establish a certain culture. But the work of racial literacy of embedding black British history in particular is a culture change. These conversations around race and racism is very much a culture change. So I think that's probably the biggest problem that we've been trying to support. I say we, you know, through the black curriculum and through my work in the past few years is how can we support leaders to see it as a culture change, as a mindset change, not just content change. Mm. Um, so so, so I, I think that's that's the biggest problem because again you, that evolution oh sorry go ahead because like, can you give us some concrete examples of what you mean uh, you know to contrast the content change versus the mindset change what does okay, that certainly. look like so if we think about like, anti-racism so it, it, with anti-racist with anti-racist policy someone perceives something to be discriminatory so either as a child or as a teacher, it's reported, there's a report that's done and so on, there's action taken and that, and that sort of thing. Um, so if you've got that content done, you've done the, the, the internal CPD around it so the teachers are aware, you've even got a few forms filled out. But if through analysis of student voice, the students say that they don't trust that system, they don't say anything, they don't share um, their experience of microaggressions or, or, or any discrimination because they don't trust that anything's actually going to be done. They don't trust that the, the, the teachers are actually confident in mm-hmm. addressing it. There, there's too many missed opportunities. And there was a girl I was speaking to earlier in the year who said that she experienced a microaggression at school. It was, it was, it was horrible. And she, she experienced a microaggression at school. And the, the, the overall message as a teacher is um, that the student in that experience should speak to a trusted adult but she'd received the microaggression from a trusted adult so do you go to another trusted adult do you address it with that she didn't address it with the adult she didn't tell anybody and when she got home she told her parents who were enraged so furious that they spoke to their teacher that day and that evening um and then i'm sorry it was that evening and then the next day it was done and addressed you know it, it was dealt with very very strongly um i, I would say a typical school response um, a few days later, she experienced something else, um, a similar microaggression, but from a different teacher. And she said, if I tell the teachers, they think I'm going to be causing trouble. If I tell my parents, they're going to be so upset again. I, it's better just to swallow it. I, I don't because that response was so strong to a certain extent, understandably, but because there wasn't a real mechanism in place, there wasn't a system in place. Um, to support the child or indeed the teachers and so on. It, it became a decision for that, that child. So. I think that's the key. So you've got you've got the content in the policy. It's clear what people should do. And and, and Dr. Sarah Ahmed makes great points around this. And there's a great bit of writing, um, an essay she's done, an article, sorry, where she says you end up doing the document instead of doing the doing. And I, I think that's and we speak to, to in, in the back curriculum teacher training and the senior leadership training. We, we speak to that a lot in terms of that focus on audit culture, on, on getting the paperwork done. But the real doing of the doing is how can you get it to a point where your anti-racist approach is trusted. So the students know, and there's a, a great school in Manchester, I'm um, speaking to a lead there, who that's the evolution they've noticed in the last couple of years, um, is that more the students are saying to them, we report things now because we know it's going to be dealt with. And, and I think that, that within that as well, this, this is something I think really key is that if I'm going back to that point of a concern as a leader about culture change, 
the reality is if you improve your anti-racist approach, you're going to get in the short term a lot more complaints around discrimination because the people, the school, the students, the community are going to feel empowered. They're going to trust. And again, as a leader, is you know, you've got Austin coming in three months. Do you really want 300 <laughs> discrimination complaints that on record? So it's, you know, from a professional sense, and I use profession in a very loose way because I don't particularly like the word. I think that's quite a Eurocentric word, if I'm honest. Um, but, but yeah, for, from that circumstance, it, it's, it's a big risk to mm-hmm. get it to the point where you risk a lot of discriminatory complaints, a lot of teachers feeling uncomfortable, challenged. I think particularly at secondary, that's what we've noticed too, is, is that it's particularly difficult because if, if teachers are braving conversations around race and racism and they're teaching it explicitly, that invites challenge. Of it course. invites potentially um, controversial things to be said by students. And if, if there was a great teacher who was speaking uh, at the end of the teacher training I was, was doing, who was saying that I'm trying to do this, but no one else is. So I'm, I'm trying to teach. And, it, and I, I said, I'm just, I'm digging such a hole for myself because my students are having great conversations, as I can see it. Their understanding is deepening and they go somewhere else and it gets challenged and squashed and even ridiculed. And then they come back to me, you know, so that you can't obviously as a teacher be acting in a silo. Um, Mm. So, so, so I think so that reality of, of, of content versus culture, uh, document versus doing, um, I think that's a real practical example. So almost to the point of if you don't have an anti-racist policy, even though you have to have one, if you don't have an anti-racist policy, but you have a very effective, trusted anti-racist approach and, and, and working mechanism, then that, that to me will, will be the difference. Um, and, and beyond that as well, I think another practical example is that so often um, the people charged with this responsibility are those who are highly melanated and in the minority. You know, they're, and again, putting those people in that position to, to bring a change within the school culture alone, you know, that burden of, of representation, um, when firstly it's not their problem to solve, Right. It would, would be my view. Um, but, but again, that's the situation of right. They must know, you know, I, I'm mocking here slightly harshly, but they must know what this race thing is about. They, they must know what's needed and people are more likely to take it from them. You know, I'm assuming that these are the assumptions that go through those sort of choices in terms of. I also, I also wonder whether it's partly perceived as quote unquote their problem. So it's quote unquote their problem. So it's quote unquote their problem to solve. I feel like that's what I see a lot more of that for many white people, even people who would empathize, sympathize to some extent, you know, there might even be people saying, yeah, you know, there is an imbalance, but you know, because it doesn't affect white people or or white people don't think that it affects us in a meaningful way it doesn't require the kind of action that it does if your child is being taught that the only uh, black figures in history were slaves. Obviously, that's a major problem for you as a black parent because that's a horrifying perspective for your child to be raised thinking that's the only heritage they have. But for white parents, they might not agree with that version of history, but I don't think they necessarily experience it as as much of a problem that requires them to take action and I think about this a lot because I wonder whether 
you know the meaningful change you talk about the the, the doing the actual doing is only really going to happen when people racialized as white think of it as much of a problem as black or brown people do and that isn't because you have to convince them of that in my opinion it's really understanding the harm that hierarchies of human value cause in our society that 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 learning that thing in history that omits huge parts of world history isn't just a detail it impacts how your child thinks about the world and ultimately does harm to them and to those around them. I, I, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, what I speak about, what we've spoken about in the, in the teacher training is that um, a self-respecting curriculum um, arms the students with the understanding, the knowledge, the skills they'll need to navigate the real world. And given that the real world is diverse along the lines you've just been describing, um, if you're really going to do them, the students, justice, then you need to teach them as early as possible to be able to navigate that diversity, to respect it and to appreciate it and so on. But I think this is cynical, but it, it is my, 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 certainly my personal perspective, it is that even that uh, imploring of empathy, I think, does fall largely on deaf, ear, deaf, um, deaf ears. And I, I think that the, that the it is not heard or, or already felt to the point of um, translating into the doing of the doing. And so yeah. what I, I know as a leader does bite and does speak and reach is student voice. And, and so, again, that's, I think, a really practical example of, of where, again, often saying to school leaders, um, you may you have got a very beautifully crafted anti-racist policy and the review of your curriculum now does incorporate in histories. But your student voice data says that they don't trust the anti-racist policy and that they don't feel that the teachers and the leaders are confident discussing race, teaching race. They don't feel that they're confident challenging racism. So there's something that's broken down there that, that, that they need addressing. And that's that that bites again mm. with, with, with the Ofsted horizon you know, looming and so on. If you've got student voice data that's telling you actually the lived experience of the students regardless of their racialized position their lived experience is that they themselves aren't confident discussing race they're yeah. not confident challenging races and they, they they don't have a deep understanding of, of, of hidden histories then then that sorry, then, then they're more receptive sorry Tinto. No, i was just on that on that point of feeling uh, confident discussing race so every time you've said it something in my head's gone off and i've thought are you confident discussing race? And only because I do these podcasts and I've been doing them for years. So, I mean, and I discuss race outside of the podcast for those who are wondering if this is the only time I dab into it. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I was thinking, when you were saying, I was thinking, am I confident discussing race? I don't, it's really, it's very difficult. Are you confident discussing race? Well, this, this is the perverse, my perverse like of the working truth because um, I, I'm not um, but recognising that I'm not makes me want to not become more comfortable because I was reading actually um, a few days ago, um, again, re referencing Dr. Sarah Ahmed, who, who speaks about um, part of the work of diversity is not supporting you know, the, the world to reach a point of complete reconciliation so everyone's reconciled and so on. It's actually embracing the reality that there are going to be some aspects of our experience, if not a lot, that can't be reconciled. And I think that's that's the that's the, the, the I guess that's the point that that I, I think I come to within my discomfort in terms of 
it speaks to my sense of justice, you know, the, the, the work that we're speaking about here, and, and, and I want to write that wrong and so on. But at the same time, um, I, I, yeah, I know there's elements that can't be reconciled, and I, and I know that I feel, I feel, you know, it's probably not, probably not coming across as I intend in terms of, I, I feel responsible in terms of my racialized position. A hundred percent. And, and I, yeah. again, I know this is, this, this, I know can often be labeled as even dismissed or distracting, be a distraction in terms of white guilt and so on, which I, 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 I think that, as I said, I do think framing things in terms of white guilt is, is, is a distraction because the reality is that I feel uncomfortable because I shouldn't have, like even today, I shouldn't have them, like, I, I shouldn't be, it, it's not my turn or space to speak. Um, and, and I think equally along the lines of like being called an ally as well. I, I, that, I, I struggle with that, that as well because my, the extending the logic of that is if you're an ally, then you're at war, which I can see why that metaphor is there. Um, but also it means that you, you've chosen a side. And so for me, I, I know the side that I've chosen to support, but equally, what does that, you know, does that mean I'm against people who are racialized as white? Am I against myself? You know, all of which, again, I think are, are like spiraling distractions. Uh, so I, but is it a white versus black issue or is it a white supremacy versus equality issue? In which case, to me, the side is an easy pick, at least theoretically, even though I'm conscious of the fact that whether I like to think of myself as siding with the idea and the theory of equality, there are so many ways in which just by existing in the skin that I do, that I reinforce in my day-to-day forms of um, inequality. And that I, the least I could do in that context is to be actively involved in trying to highlight the problems and in some way try to challenge them. But I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily see it as a white versus black issue i see it no, really. no i agree and I'm, 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 again i'm sorry if it has come across in that way no i agree i i, I don't either but I, I think that um and so when i refer to to, to myself as being white it's, it's my racialized socialized advantage that that's what i'm speaking about in in, in terms of that um yeah. and and i i i, I think again I, I think that i understand what you're saying in terms of like um i guess it's it's, it's oppression versus the oppressed in terms of that Power, yeah. power struggle ultimately but but i think that what complicates it and it's important to to be aware of is, is that such is the influence of eurocentrism that there are many people who are not racialized as white that that, that have a very eurocentric you know centric view and 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 don't necessarily have the confidence to discuss race or, or change sure. racism either you, you sure. know what i mean so so i think i think it's, i guess where it's where my take is more i guess humanist or, or you know, human centric in, in terms of supporting equality and, and, and the, the challenge of oppression through through yeah, supporting people to have confidence around these discussing these the, the, these problems but also the doing of the doing within that is is challenging discrimination is challenging challenging oppression small and the, you know, the, 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 the small and the big and I, I agree I think that's where it goes well beyond um, 